questions tend to inspire a world of ideas, much more than a mere need to answer. It's the unending quest of understanding our origins, the laws of nature, and the depths of a human mind that most often leads us as far as astray, only to be found anew. My name is Naman Jain, and we welcome you to the very first episode of Zeroing In, the science podcast brought to you by the Sounding Rocket and the IIST Alumni Association from the Indian Institute of Space Science and Technology. Over our journey, we will explore the multitudes of ideas and research being carried out by the professors and researchers in the scientific community closer home, across the country and the world. Welcome to today's episode of Zeroing In. I'm Naman Jain and joining with me today as co-host is Prajwal Patnayak. Today, we are in conversation with an astrophysicist whose belief in the scientific quest for understanding the physical universe and our place in it as humankind, as he puts it, is one of the most remarkable adventures our species have ever embarked upon. This has led him to investigate the intricate mysteries of the universe very hands-on. Back on Earth, he currently holds the position of an associate professor at the Indian Institute of Space Science and Technology. He pursued his master's and doctoral work in the discipline of astronomy and astrophysics from the Pennsylvania State University after a B.Tech in electronics and electrical engineering from CET. An avid educator and an active science communicator, he is well known in the community for his popular science columns in magazines and newspapers, public lectures and scientific documentaries. In academia, his research work focuses on understanding the details of intergalactic medium in various scientific dimensions, including the distribution of baryonic matter therein. In our conversation with him, we discussed about his curious journey, his exciting research, and the further ideas on the field. A very warm welcome to Dr. Anand Narayanan. So, sir, we would like to begin with a discussion about the beginnings and how your formative years were as you remember them. Uh, what was the atmosphere like when you were growing up and how was it around? Did you, did you know somehow that this was where your passion would lead you? Okay, so, um, see, I grew up in a family that always valued education and the pursuit of knowledge without worrying much about the utility of it. So at home, uh, I remember that we were always surrounded by books of all kinds. Okay, there was fiction, non-fiction, history, literature, etc. So reading was always encouraged. And whatever my parents read, they shared it with us children. So there was always very good family conversation centered around books, reading, and about all aspects uh, of knowledge. So I think looking back, uh, all that laid the foundation for my own interest in higher education and learning. And somewhere along the way, I think my thought process uh, and my mind kind of matured to a level where uh, I also started asking some meaningful questions about many things. So um, during my 11th and 12th, uh, I developed a kind of interest for physics. During my B.Tech, I started reading general books on astrophysics. I read books by Patrick Moore, by Ken Crosswell. I read books by Carl Sagan, Fred Hoyle, 
all of them were great communicators of science so their writing and the ideas they put across in those books uh, they were very fascinating for me and uh, i think it left a very powerful impression on me and above all uh, as you very well know astrophysics as a discipline has this charm because it deals with some of the most profound questions that the human mind has ever bothered to ask so naturally i was attracted to it and also as i started reading more on astrophysics by myself i realized that it was a very interesting way to understand physics because astrophysics puts physics in a very interesting context okay sometimes in extreme conditions you understand physics so um, i think all that sort of drew me into that subject so i won't say that there was any particular instance or incidents or a person who kind of influenced my interest in this discipline but it was a cumulative of all of it right from the upbringing that i had at home where as i mentioned you know we were always told that what is worthwhile to pursue in life is uh, knowledge okay so that's how i became interested in uh, thinking about a career in science thinking about a career in astrophysics and so there was all those things feeding into my ambition and feeding into my confidence that i would be able to pursue something like this uh-huh. that's really beautiful one of the lines that i pick up from this is that the idea of valuing knowledge was always there and that somehow naturally transcended to your understanding that there was a career in science to be pursued so uh, we would like to ask about your decision to pursue astronomy and astrophysics after completing your undergraduate course in electrical and electronics engineering how did the people around you react to this decision and how was this transition for you on a personal level and how did the atmosphere in the pennsylvania state university shape your mind as a researcher yeah so um, my decision to go for higher education in astrophysics became stronger as i read more and more astrophysics during my engineering years so you can say that i was teaching myself so there was some kind of self initiated learning that was going on and initially i started reading popular books in astrophysics but then slowly i started also reading more technical books in astrophysics by technical books i mean textbooks in introductory astrophysics and so i found that uh, the way Okay, so astrophysics is basically a way of looking at the physical universe, the world around us, and more importantly, the world above us through the prism of physics. So I developed some uh, inside information on the kind of physics and mathematics that goes into astrophysics, and I found that I uh, I will be able to manage it, even though I didn't have a firm academic foundation in physics. So I thought it's good to go into this. So when I announced this, I don't think there was any objection. As I said. i was lucky or i was fortunate enough to be born into a family where uh, they uh, encouraged the thinking out of the box so the freedom to experiment with life was crucial and my family provided me with that and i think that was a huge uh, sort of strength or foundation when i joined the graduate program the phd program in astronomy and astrophysics uh, at uh, pennsylvania state university so all incoming students they are given a graduate student handbook so it's like a users manual on how to plan your phd years and the first sentence of that graduate handbook was something interesting it it said uh, graduate school in astrophysics is like drinking water from a fire hose okay so your thirst will get quenched but you may kill yourself in that process okay that's what it meant so it was their humorous way of saying that it's not going to be an easy ride 
is going to be a lot of demand and uh, surely you know as i went through the months and years i realized that that sentence was actually true so the coursework was very demanding um, and uh, since i didn't have a thorough exposure to physics before joining that program it was all the more challenging for me but i taught myself physics on a need to know basis it was a very tough ride it was a steep climb but uh, you know all good things in life the climb is usually steep the environment was highly supportive uh, the, all the faculty members who were there they looked at every graduate student in that context in from which they came so they never looked at the students from the same yardstick there was always constant conversation with faculty members on where we lack and where support was required one of the things is that in a research environment you learn in the classroom context but a lot of learning also happens through osmosis okay so you are in an environment where everybody is thinking about new ideas everybody is thinking about different ways of approaching a problem and so you watch and see them perform and then you also learn okay so that one can approach thinking this one can solve problems this way one can cope with challenges in this way so formally and informally one gets to learn a lot and that's what happened during my phd years also okay it's actually quite reassuring to know that given proper environments uh, with some hard work one can surely be enabled to pursue a passion of theirs so continuing along the same lines uh, we would like to delve a little onto your doctoral work how did you get interested in quasars exactly at that point and reading a bit through your thesis also and how it talks about quite intimidating and interesting things we'd like to ask you how did that whole idea come about for you and what did it entail what did the work exactly entail yeah okay so uh, before joining penn state i only had a peripheral understanding of what astrophysics is so i wanted to uh, choose a place where there was a large diversity in terms of research and uh, penn state had people working in different areas of astrophysics there was a huge diversity and so since i didn't know exactly what research in astrophysics is about i wanted to be in a place where i could sample some of these areas and before choosing what i would want to work on for my phd so i was looking for a project that is a good hybrid of theory and observations so i wanted something which is a good admixture of both these and uh, study of quasars and light from quasars to understand properties of diffuse gas in the universe that seemed like a very interesting thing and so i chose that as my work the work that i did for my doctoral dissertation it essentially involved using distant bright galaxies which are generally known as quasars to study the physical properties and chemical abundances of gas that is in between us and that quasar so as it turns out most of the ordinary matter okay which is fashionably referred to as baryonic matter most of this ordinary matter in our universe uh, lives outside of galaxies so if you are actually just looking at pictures of light coming from galaxies we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg okay most of the ordinary matter is in a very diffuse form outside of galaxies in the environment surrounding galaxies so to study this visible component of our universe this ordinary matter uh, we need to make use of a technique called absorption line spectroscopy and this technique involves looking at very bright distant galaxies and collecting the light from those galaxies using telescopes and sending that light to a spectrograph which disperses that light and when you look at that spectrum of that distant galaxy you are going to see 
uh, evidence for whatever parcel of gas that is between us and that galaxy. So even if that uh, parcel of gas is not emitting starlight, it's going to cast its spectral shadow on the light. So this is a, a interesting way to study diffuse gas in the universe. So my own research work was trying to understand a particular kind of parcel of gas that is present in our universe from the present universe to the very distant universe over roughly 10 billion year history of the universe. How has this particular parcel of gas evolved over cosmic time? Uh -huh. Okay, I mean, so there's this one thing that I, that I really wanted to ask regarding this. There are so many specific details in this broad range of work that you just described. And I see that your, that your thesis was, was also clearly pointing that out, that weak, low ionization quasars absorb light systems. Uh, so, I mean, how do you decide or how do you point at, at the details that you want to, to, you know, explore? How do you go about that process when you are conducting your research? Yeah, so there's this old saying about research that research is knowing more and more about less and less. Now, I think in different fields of uh, uh, science, uh, the approach could be a little bit different, but at least in, in astronomy, this is the way it works. So before committing to a certain problem, you do some, uh, you go through a checklist, okay, you see whether the kind of questions that you are trying to answer, whether they are answerable with the current uh, data that is available or the data that is likely to become available with existing facilities. So there are a lot of questions for which you may want to know an answer. For example, we may want to know whether there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Okay, but that's a question that we can live with throughout our life, but maybe we may never find an answer to it. Okay, that's an interesting question, but that's probably not a question that we should go after when we are uh, planning for a PhD. Okay, so, so you go through a checklist and see whether there is... Um, uh, enough data that is available or whether there is enough information that's going to become available to address that particular question. And second is what kind of tools are required to address those questions. If that is also available, then you kind of jump into it and then you go through that process. And research in any discipline, it has certain characteristics, which is that you are working in an area that probably other people have not worked a lot on. Okay, they may have worked on allied areas, but this particular question, maybe nobody else has looked at in great detail. So you are on kind of on your own, you are sort of clearing the path and making your own way. So that means that it's going to be an emotional ride. So that's another thing that you prepare yourself, you know, when you start off this journey, there are going to be moments of ecstasy and there are going to be moments of agony. But that is true for any creative process. Okay, there is a, there's a lot of ups and downs that you go through, but that's part of the package, you know, that's what you sign up for. So uh, this is all the things that happens to you and uh, this is how you know we get into research and uh, this, and finally with support from your own mentors, support from your own supervisors who kind of hold your hand at times and show you the right direction, you know, your work gets completed. So yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a slightly long innings, but it's a very interesting journey. So as you mentioned, research is about trying to clear unexplored paths and while pursuing a PhD, one has someone to turn to for guidance. But as an independent researcher, one is free to wander about. On that note, we would like to talk about the latter half of your journey. Your current research shows a broad range of ideas being delved into, like search for distribution patterns of baryonic matter, the use of spectroscopic data in understanding high metallicity of extragalactic gas clouds and about the investigations of active galactic nuclei. So would you like to throw some light on your current research directions? Yeah. 
Okay, so um, whatever research that I'm currently doing is an extension of the kind of work that I started off during my postdoctoral years. So after my PhD, I went for my postdoctoral work at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and it was uh, this was in 2008, and it was a very exciting time because right around 2009 was when the last servicing mission of the Hubble Space Telescope was done. One of the main tasks that they did during the servicing mission is to install a very unique spectrograph on Hubble called the Cosmic Origins Spectrograph. And so I started my work with a set of people who were part of the Cosmic Origins Spectrograph team. One of the big questions in observational uh, cosmology or extragalactic astronomy at that time was uh, the census of baryons in the present universe. Okay. So let me explain that a little bit. It turns out throughout cosmic history, throughout the 13 billion year history of our universe, this ordinary matter has mostly lived outside of galaxies. In the very high redshift universe, in the distant faraway universe, 98% of ordinary matter lives outside of galaxies for a simple reason that galaxies had not formed then. The universe was too young, so galaxies were just beginning to form. And then 10 billion years or 13 billion years rolled by and many galaxies and galaxy clusters and galaxy groups formed. So you would have assumed that a lot of matter would have flown into those galaxies. But observational census of ordinary matter in the, in the local universe showed that only 10% of the cosmic inventory of baryons are actually inside galaxies in the form of stars, planets, etc. Which means 90% of it is still outside. So in other words, galaxy formation, the formation of large-scale structure in the universe is a highly inefficient process. You gave the universe 10 billion year time, but still it could form only galaxies with an efficiency of roughly 10%. So if you want to study the only observable component of our universe, which is visible matter, you need to look outside of galaxies. And so the quest began to find complete the observational census of ordinary matter in the low redshift universe. And when they did this search, they found out that no matter how hard they tried to look at where these baryons could be lurking outside of galaxies, the observational census was always falling short of 100%. Okay, many observational searches were done and they found out that the baryons uh, outside of galaxies add another 50% or 60% to what is inside galaxies. So the census was kind of hanging at something like 60%. So 40% of the baryons were still missing. So this was uh, termed as the missing baryons problem, Okay, obviously, because baryons are missing, so missing baryons problem. So there was a need to complete the observational census of these baryons. So one of the main science drivers for building this cosmic origin spectrograph was to complete the baryon census in the low redshift universe. So COS was installed in 2009 and data started coming in and this observational search began. And since then, the census of baryons in the low redshift universe have come very close to 100%. So the missing baryons problem is kind of solved. So this is an area that I have been working on for the last 10 years and more. Uh, off late, that work we have been doing also with students in IIST who have been doing projects with me and where we try to detect where these baryons are present, at what uh, densities and temperatures these missing baryons could be present and what kind of astrophysical environments they are present. So that's that's the work, that's that's been most of that work and whatever you just mentioned in the question, those are all allied topics related to this. But the, the, the grand theme is 
going after the uh, baryons in the lower redshift universe and trying to complete the observational census of them okay okay really interesting i mean it, it actually fills up a whole whole broad world of questions that i have now going on so there's this enveloping idea of trying to figure out where the missing baryons are right is this is this all that we're trying to figure out while analyzing this data or is there something else that also comes out of it uh, that you find helpful and the second part which is perhaps more naive is if this investigation is somehow aimed at also maybe even very peripherally at reconciling the seeming disconnect between the dark matter hypothesis and the elusiveness surrounding the attempts for its direct detection okay so um i think i'll answer the second question first okay so whenever uh, we say missing matter usually people confuse it with dark matter but as you mentioned rightly in the question you know these are two different things there seems to be overwhelming evidence or observations from multiple uh, directions seem to indicate that there is a invisible gravitating component to our universe which is called dark matter and there is even probably an even more mysterious component of our universe called dark energy which is causing the expansion of the universe so dark matter and dark energy together add up to 96% of the energy density of the universe all the stuff that we see around us and all the stuff that we call as galaxies stars planets etc they are just 4% of the overall energy density of the universe so what i was explaining as missing baryons is that 4% okay so even in that 4% in the in the local universe uh, we don't know where most of that 4% is the observational census of baryons in the low redshift universe that doesn't directly address this question of what dark matter could be or what dark energy could be those questions are left out but it is linked with dark matter in the following way when we are trying to find where these baryons could be present where they could be lurking in our universe we take the help of numerical simulations we take the help of theory to tell us where we should be looking okay the universe is a vast place so if any pointers on where we should be looking would be very useful so studies of something that's been happening in cosmology over the last uh, 20 30 years is that from a theoretical point of view many people are simulating the formation of large scale structures with the help of supercomputers so how galaxies galaxy clusters etc form and how did the large scale structure of the universe come about so these simulations they don't have to worry about missing baryons etc because it you are simulating the universe in the computer so you put the baryons and you can watch what is happening to them with time and so these simulations show that in the present universe a lot of baryons are present in highly ionized form okay as a plasma with temperatures of 100000 kelvin to a 10 million kelvins and this gas is at such high temperatures because of the formation of structure in the universe these galaxies and galaxy clusters form under the influence of dark matter so dark matter provides the scaffolding on which ordinary matter forms structures so whenever we see a galaxy the it it the galaxy is actually held by the underlying potential of dark matter so dark matter is this invisible framework within which ordinary matter is organizing itself into these large scale structures so during the process of structure formation when ordinary matter flows into dark matter potential wells driven by the force of gravity the speed of with which they flow exceeds the speed of sound and that produces shocks okay astrophysical shocks and these shocks tend to shock heat the matter to very high temperatures of plasma 
so if it is in a completely ionized state it's very difficult to see them in absorption against background sources okay because the electrons are all ripped off from the uh, the atom so um, it's very difficult to see it but you one can detect it uh, provided one has access to uh, far ultraviolet ultraviolet high energy spectroscopy okay so um, that's where so the theory says that so that is the kind of energy range that we should be looking at that's the kind of spectra that we should be looking at that's why cosmic origin spectrograph was built and that's why it has succeeded in detecting a lot of these baryons so the way the work is connected with dark matter is we are following the the properties of matter within the framework of dark matter that's how it is yeah extremely extremely fascinating it was really good to see how enthusiastically you spoke about it like even at a point you had to actually drop off your leave your mic and both you know, use both my hands flow. yes yeah <laughs> but this was extremely interesting i mean i i never read about this this is something that's completely left out from what we are taught in in the popular culture so uh, sir would you like to throw some light on what scientific uh, research directions did you not pursue okay maybe due to lack of time kind of like you know you didn't find time to but you were otherwise very interested to do it so uh, while i was doing my phd a field of research that was gaining a lot of momentum was the discovery of planets beyond the confines of our solar system orbiting other stars so these are called extrasolar planets and this was an up and coming field it was like an adventure that was unfolding in astrophysics okay so 1995 is when the first extrasolar planet around a sun like star was discovered and um, uh, the pennsylvania state university where i was doing my phd um, had uh, people who were part of a larger campaign to find extrasolar planets planets orbiting other stars so it was a very interesting topic because this is a question that a lot of people are interested in uh, for the simple reason that one of the big questions that has been occupying the human mind for a very long time is the possibility of finding life elsewhere in the universe so the first step in trying to answer that question is to find a, a potentially habitable safe haven for life okay and planets uh, life as we know it requires a planetary environment so prior to 1995 the only example that we had of a planetary system was our own solar system and all kinds of grand ideas about how planets form around stars were all based on this one example of our own solar system but 1995 the first planet was discovered and following that more and more planetary discoveries started coming up so i can say that planets came back to the center fold of astrophysics you know so so to speak uh, it once again became very important and there was a lot of interest in it and also at that time there was a development of an interdisciplinary field of science called astrobiology okay which is a happy marriage between life sciences and astronomy and geology and atmospheric science where you have people with expertise in all these fields uh, trying to answer one fundamental question which is uh, could there be life outside of earth so the us space agency nasa they, it identified 11 institutions all across us to start astrobiology programs and penn state was one of the chosen as one of the center for astrobiology research and so uh, we had a program in our department of astronomy and astrophysics where you could get a double phd in phd in astrophysics and phd in astrobiology if you are working on topics related to exoplanets and allied astrobiology areas uh, so the double phd was not that attractive but uh, what was interesting to me was that this seemed like a very very exciting field 
to do something on okay finding planets around other stars it's it's far, far more easy to explain it to people what i'm doing than you know quasar absorption line spectroscopy okay i can always say that i'm looking for planets around other stars it's a much more sellable idea so that's one area where i wish you know i had taken some time to do some work but you no know, the universe has very interesting ways of compensating for whatever we miss out on our life and so now i am at iist i am teaching a planetary science course where i teach a lot of exoplanet research uh, related topics okay so i i teach uh, the techniques that astronomers use to detect uh, planets around other stars this semester i am also teaching uh, seven lectures in astrobiology which is an institute elective so that's my way of pacifying myself for having missed out on the opportunity to work in that field <laughs> okay uh, so so uh, to jump a bit and uh, yeah. talking about the non technical ideas your contributions to popular science magazines as scientific articles aim at basically generating general awareness yet probe into considerable depth without shying away for instance from the underlying technicalities Uh, is it possible to articulate in words about what you seek out for while taking up such endeavors yeah so when i was in grad school okay, uh, the professors there used to say that being a good researcher is trying to cultivate a multi dimensional vector within ourselves so one is of course raw intelligence okay and uh, not everybody is gifted with raw intelligence okay some people are born with it and if you have that raw intelligence in abundance you are well and good but then in addition to having intelligence and innovativeness and thinking etc it's also important to be able to articulate your ideas in a manner that is uh, coherent comprehensible and in a manner that's accessible to a wider cross section of people so we were always told to think and write and talk a lot about our own work okay so that we become comfortable with explaining our own work and this was not only true for education and public outreach even when we are giving scientific talks scientific lectures the professors our mentors always used to say that you try to make it as simple as possible okay often people tend to appreciate your work not based on how much work you have done but how well they understand your work people's impression about your own work depends on how well they understand it so this ability to communicate is something that our professors laid a lot of emphasis on so writing for the general public communicating science these are things uh, which i always enjoyed doing because that's the time when i can challenge myself and see whether i can tell a story in a in a way that has a beginning a middle and an end without leaving it hanging are uh, writing articles for newspapers writing articles for uh, school magazines making documentary films these are all attempts to do that and to reach out to a wider cross section of people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, sir to conclude i think i would like to ask this final question given that you engage a lot with students from all age groups for instance from school to college and to even graduate students Uh, what inspires you or fascinates you most when you talk to younger children and how does that experience contrast uh, to when you're interacting with a graduate student what is it that that strikes you the most yeah, yeah. so this is a, this is a very tough question to answer see i think as one of the fundamental attributes of what makes us human is curiosity okay so uh, i think one of the challenges of growing up is to keep that sense of wonderment and curiosity to the world around us alive because that is where knowledge becomes wisdom okay so uh, we may know a lot of things inside our head but 
that is knowledge okay unless that becomes part of our inner being it doesn't transform into wisdom and these two are very different knowing something and realizing what it means is very different as we grow up okay we have to keep on rebooting our system so that we don't lose this connection between knowledge and wisdom the scientific world view can be as refreshing as entertaining and as liberating as art or music or anything great that the human kind has done okay so if if only we understand it in its proper context so this is the difference that i kind of see to come back to your original question this is the difference i see with small children and uh, uh, older uh, students that sense of uh, curiosity is something that we lose out but if you think about it you know that is what that is the hallmark of the human species so maybe losing the sense of curiosity could also mean that you know we cease to become human This was zeroing in with Dr. Anand Narayanan. It has been brought to you by the Sounding Rocket in collaboration with the IISD Alumni Association from the Indian Institute of Space Science and Technology. We extend our sincere gratitude to Dr. Narayanan for sharing his fascinating ideas and insights with us on behalf of our whole team, which included Fenil Shah, Manish Chauhan, Prajwal Patnaik, and Shreya Mishra. And I am Naman Jain. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. If you have any suggestions you can write to us on zeroing in at outlook.in or contact and follow us on our Instagram handle at zeroing in podcast or the sounding rocket page on Facebook. We will see you on the other side of the week with another exciting episode of zeroing in. Mm-hmm.